Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations on food and farming. I'm Katie Federal, the Communications Director for the Sustainable Farming Association. This episode, we're going to shake things up a little bit. My co-host Jared Lumen and I are going to be both the guests and the hosts today. And I guess that makes us the ghosts. Happy Halloween. Let's get to it. Hey, Jared. Hey, Katie. Good to good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. We don't get to do this too often. I mean, no. I think we've always no. made episodes with other people. So I guess we're really changing it up by just doing an us two today. Yeah, yeah, it'll be fun. It's it is kind of weird. Like we uh, we since I came on and, and presumably even before I came on, everything everybody always kind of works independently, so we don't get the chance to talk like this. But here we are on a mm-hmm. podcast, <laughs> so, <laughs> our yeah. virtual office space. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, no one's really interviewed you on the show yet. So maybe could you give uh, folks a little bit of background on what exactly it is you do as a soil health lead and maybe tell us a bit about your farm as well? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's definitely different being on this side of the mic, I guess you could say <laughs> it's it's fun, a lot of fun to, to talk to other people, but I'd be happy to share a little bit about what uh, myself and what I'm up to. Like you mentioned, I'm the soil health lead for the Sustainable Farming Association and that uh, role has a uh, many different roles I would say within it uh, that are maybe loosely defined so we, we got lots of going on uh, <laughs> lots going on with SFA which is cool um, but really my goal is, is a big part of my job is just trying to help promote soil health and help farmers you know learn how to implement soil health principles in their operations and and those operations can be everything I, I work with you know small market gardens to large scale crop farms and livestock producers. You know, I'm working with all sorts of farms and, and the way that we share the education with them is diverse, is, is as diverse as the farms that we work with. Everything from, uh, you know, on-site pasture walks and farm field days to webinars, which were heavily utilized or maybe a little overutilized in the past year <laughs> because of COVID. Very much enjoyed the last few months of being in person again and, and looking forward to some of our winter events, which is something else that we you know, I help organize and is our, you know, Midwest Soil Health Summit and an annual conference. Um, and then something that we were able to get some funding to do this past year that I really appreciated and enjoyed was one-on-one consulting. Uh, a lot of mm-hmm. these field days that we get to do are fantastic and have a lot of great information shared by a lot of great farmers. Um, but when you leave those field days and you get home and you're back on your own farm trying to remember, you know, okay, those things were great, but how do I, how do I apply that here? What do I, you know, how do I implement these things that he was doing on my farm that that can get a little stressful or challenging, or we can just, you know, get caught up in the day-to-day workload again and, and kind of forget all about it. And so this one-on-one consulting that I, I really do think is important because it allows us to spend a day with, you know, our time with farmers on their farm, discussing these soil health principles and how they apply within their own context and not the context of the person whose field day is they were hosting it at or something. Mm And, um, and so it's, I think it's really important. I mean, it's one of the kind of the soil health principles is that we talk about is context. And, And so, being able to apply and discuss the principles within the given context of one farmer and their land base and their operation and their, you know, set of circumstances is going to be really important uh, for them. But uh, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, a nutshell of the things that I do. There's, there's lots more that I could talk about, but uh, it, it's, that's, that's a rough, <laughs> a rough <laughs> overview. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of people 
don't seem to quite be aware of is that um, opportunity for those one-on-one consultations. And mm-hmm. I can see how, I mean, just in the context maybe of even learning a new hobby for me is like, oh, I have all these big plans as soon as I learn to do it. And then you get home and you're like, oh, oh, wait, wait, what did they say? What was this part again? Yeah. Yep. And I can see how that would be really valuable. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, like I even, you, I was talking to you a while ago about like your work that you do in the wood shop and stuff. And like, I think that's so cool. I wish I had these skills. And I went out when I came, <laughs> when I moved onto this farm and I bought myself, you know, these power tools and things and started trying to do woodworking. And after a very short period of time, I gave up on it. Cause I was like, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. I watch these <laughs> videos or I see people building awesome things, but I don't have the skill set, and I don't know. So you know, yeah, I mean, the one-on-one, you know, the training is is important and it, it totally applies to anything. I mean, it's not just farming and soil health. Um, yeah, you're, you're right on with that. <laughs> okay, so you do all this stuff for SFA and you also mm-hmm. farm, right? Yeah. So you, you farm with your family? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm living right now on, on what was the original, well, and I shouldn't say the original farm homestead, the original farm homestead is kind of neat. We live in a line. If you stand at my dad's house and look, it'd be Southwest. Uh, you can see four houses that I grew up in a house. My dad grew up in the next house. His dad grew up in the next house and his dad grew up in the next house. So our Lumen family has been farming here for generations, but oh I'm gosh. living on the farm that my grandpa bought in the sixties and my dad, uh, grew up on, um, and, and we farm here with my dad, John, and, and my wife, my wife, my dad's wife, Terry, and my wife, Valerie. Um, we, we farm here together. We raise beef cattle and a little bit of organic crops and then pastured chicken. Um, and that we, my wife and I market pastured chicken through our grass-fed cattle company business in the Twin Cities. Um, so yeah, definitely stay busy when I'm not working out on other people's farms or in the office for SFA. I'm usually outside doing something here at our farm or you know, talking with customers or something along the lines of our, our, our farm business, which is great because that's one of the big reasons I took this job in the first place is one, I get to take what I've learned on our own farm and help other people implement it. But also I get to get on all these other farms and learn from them and bring some of that home to my farm. So as far as education, I've probably spent some of the most educational time I've spent here doing this work with SFA. Uh, it's very applicable to what we're trying to do on our farm and kind of a goal of ours for, you know, as long as we've been around, my grandpa t- told my dad and my dad always told me we're trying to leave the land in better condition than the way we found it mm-hmm. or the way we got it. And so, you know, what better way to learn those skills than working with farmers across the state who have and share those same goals? Oh, absolutely. And and on that note, I mean, what it, this was not an easy season for a lot of yeah. people. And so, <laughs> what, yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> a little dark turn here, but like, what, <laughs> how, how did you handle the season? What did you guys do? And since you had the opportunity to meet with so many other people who are farming mm-hmm. and see what was happening on their farms, yeah. um, talk about their experiences, yeah. like, what'd you learn from folks? What'd you see? Yeah. Yeah. So this year it, it was wild. I mean, for Minnesota, it was in, you know, extremely dry. It was a drought year with the exception of this little corner in the far, far Southeast corner of the state. If you look (laughs) at the drought map, that's like normal conditions, it says on it. I'm like, gosh, you know, here we are about a hundred miles from where this perfect weather is. And, you know, we're dry, Mm -hmm. driest that my family has been saying since 1988. Uh, And 2021 Mm -hmm. was a drought year for Minnesotans. And and I'm fortunate that we weren't nearly as bad as a lot of places 
across the state in West Central and Central Minnesota, there was areas that were extremely dry. Um, and and it was kind of an eye-opening year for one, you know, on one part, just to, you know, experience. I, I'm relatively young. I've only been farming full-time. I, I've always farm, grew up on a farm, helped every weekend and after school and came home every summer and weekend from college and worked and stuff. But I'm, I'm still relatively new in this and eye-opening to the fact that these kind of things can happen. <laughs> First of all, that, yeah. you know, we, we, I was fortunate to, to come into farming in some pretty good average rainfall years that didn't really experience this. Um, but then also, uh, this year was really eye-opening and, and neat to see how, you know, how our actual, like these soil health practices and these principles and these things that we do and that we teach through SFA on farm field days and workshops and one-on-one -on -one consulting, um, how they helped farms this year. I mean, it was really neat to see. And, and I don't want to at all give some sort of fake, uh, you know, not at all, some fake idea that, that it made all farms perfect and that we weathered the drought, you know, mm -hmm. better in the perfect situation came through it unscathed. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was still tough uh, and it, you know, it stressed us and stuff, but where I was seeing a lot of my neighbors grass drying up and completely dying, you know, we had grass growing. Um, we, we had grass growing up, albeit a, a lot slower than usual. Um, we saw grass growing and that comes back to our management and, I'll share just kind of one kind of unique story that I've been sharing a lot this year, because to me, it was a really cool experience. My dad and I were moving cattle. We actually had two, two groups of cattle to move out to the back of this pasture. And the first one we moved out there and then uh, it rained. So we waited and we thought, and then the rain stopped and the second group, uh, the rain had stopped. We're like, all right, we'll just bring the second group out now. And it started downpouring and hailing on us again. And we were like, <laughs> oh, you know, we're completely soaked. We're in the middle of the pasture. We'll just keep doing it. So we kept moving the cows all the way out to the back. And then at the back, we were at the neighbor's farm too. And it was still downpouring on us and raining and hailing and stuff. So we're like, well, we're already soaked. I mean, let's take this opportunity to see what's actually happening out here. Because how often when it's raining, are, are we able to get the actual observation of what is happening on the land on the soil like i'm talking like laying on my belly or on my hands and knees looking down at the soil and seeing what's happening oh while it's downpouring mm -hmm. um you know we don't usually get that opportunity even if we go out 10 minutes after the rain it's not the same as what's happening with the rain and so we did that i uh, i crossed the fence to our neighbor's field that was a bean field um, it had been tilled that year prior. And, and for a little bit of context, this was very much welcome rain. We hadn't had rain in probably a month. It was extremely dry and everything was really struggling. And, you know, common, you know, thought would be that with it not having rain in that long and being as dry as it was that as soon as we got any rain, every bit of it would have soaked in. And this was only a total of a half an inch in two separate shots. Uh, you know, so it wasn't an enormous amount of rain that is, you know, saturating the soil. But the neighboring bean field uh, had little streams of water running in between the rows down the hill. Uh, mm. On this bare soil, the beans were only a couple inches tall at the time. And so the, the water was just running right down. And, and this was a time when we needed water. And, and people always say, you know, it's kind of, it's not the water that we get, it's the water we keep that means the most. And sure, we had a half an inch of rain that day, but that farm maybe captured a quarter inch, maybe an eighth of an inch. I don't know how to measure that specifically, 
But then on our side of the pasture where we had moved cattle through, we left a lot of residue. We moved them, you know, the every day we're always moving them regularly, leaving residue, allowing plants to fully recover and regrow um, both in where they had grazed the day before and the stuff where they were grazing at the time and the stuff that they had not yet grazed. I dug down into the grass and was looking around and there wasn't any water moving. Uh, it was all staying on the soil. And, and so that was just kind of a, an eye-opening moment for me to see that, you know, yes, we're affected by the drought, no doubt, but our management affects maybe, you know, it, it sets us up to be more ready to take advantage of every drop of rain that does fall rather than letting it, uh, you know, run away like some neighboring fields when we need it most. Um, and so that was just a really cool experience. And then throughout the summer, we just continued to see more and more examples of our management, uh, leaving us, you know, ahead of, or, you know, having an advantage over some neighbors. And now this fall in August and September, when we did eventually get a lot of rain, we have pasture that's, I mean, we're still grazing pasture and we, we sent our cows away to, uh, to graze crop residue somewhere else. And we still probably could have grazed them here another month. <laughs> and oh in, in July, we were wondering how we were going to get to August. And still, I mean, we saw, you know, some pretty incredible response when the rain did come. And I'm convinced that a big part of that was how we managed through the summer. Um, it was kind of unfortunate through the summer. I heard several farmers say that, well, it's so dry. I just opened all the gates and let them you know, let them have what was out there, let them scavenge for what they could find and stuff. And that's kind of the opposite of what you would think would make the most sense when we have the stressful years and the stressful time is the time when the management is the most important. And so it was just really cool to see that play out on our own farm uh, this summer. Gosh, that was, I probably, can see... yeah, that was a lot of rambling. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that illustrates so well what I hear uh, you and other members of the team talking about with just the importance of observation and how powerful that must have been to see it on your own farm in front of you. And I can see why you would take that story to the field days that you've had too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Observation is so important. Um, you know, if I had, had not gone out and looked, I wouldn't maybe have had evidence to, you know, back up the management and, and, you know, it's hard to tell someone else to do something without maybe some proof of why it's important. And now, yeah, I feel armored, you know, kind of like ready to, you know, if somebody says, well, why should I do this now? Grass isn't growing anyway. It's like, well, you know, this is why we did it when grass wasn't really growing and, and the result that we saw out of it, no doubt. Yeah. Is important. Yeah. Cause I was uh, wondering earlier, like, okay, for, you know, we have a lot of um, grazing based field days and, mm -hmm. and I would wonder then if some farmers would take a look at like this last year we had and be like, oh, <laughs> heck no, I'm not going to take that risk of having a yeah. huge drought and not being able to graze and feed my animals. Yeah. No, that, that's a good point because it was scary. Like, like I say, we weren't immune to the drought. There was times there where we didn't know if we were going to be able to keep the herd, you know, if we would have to sell off a big percentage of the herd or all of the herd just to be able to, you know, keep them fed. Uh, and there were a lot of producers across the state and really across the whole country that were forced to sell cows, a lot of cows, um, because of this drought. So I can, I can absolutely understand that that fear, um, especially, I, I don't know if, I think I mentioned that my dad says this is the worst drought since 1988. And in that year when he, they had a drought, they just went out and chopped the corn that was in the fields because it wasn't growing anyway. And it wasn't going to grow, grow a, 
uh, a cob or an ear of corn. So they just fed that to the cows to survive and stuff. But um, this year it was kind of frustrating. I, I mean, I'm glad for all of our neighboring farmers, but it was kind of frustrating as a grazer looking across the fence and corn seemed to do just fine uh, despite mm. the drought. So yeah, I can definitely understand that, that, uh, that kind of fear that, you know, maybe if you're a little more risk averse that you, you wouldn't want to do livestock because you're like, this looks pretty scary. But, um, I think what I've seen and, and, you know, across the state on some of the farms that I visited and also on mine is that this management can make you more resilient to it. And also I would say one of the biggest challenges that we were faced this year in Minnesota is just completely caught off guard. I mean, mm. that, you know, we were unprepared for something like this. A lot of states out West that are more used to having droughts have drought plans, specific plans that if we don't have X amount of rainfall by this date, we sell this many cows, you know, or whatever it is. And, and you have your group, your cows sorted out into groups that sell at whatever dates and your trigger points to make that happen. And Minnesota, we've been, you know, kind of blessed to have the rainfall that we have that we just, we don't most, I don't know many producers who have that kind of written out specific drought plan. And we were caught off guard and, and kind of, you know, saw the results of that at the sale barn when all of a sudden people held on too long and there was all of a sudden a massive wave of cows being sold and sale barns shutting mm -hmm. down and things. I mean, a lot of what came wasn't entirely the drought's fault. It was a lack of preparation for a drought, lack of planning for, you know, these difficult weather times. And so if somebody is interested in grazing, I wouldn't let this scare you away from grazing or raising cattle. I would let this be a warning to you know, or a kind of a, an encouragement to plan for it because these things mm -hmm. happen. Um, and, and there are years that, you know, crops are, you know, have worse years too. There's hailstorms and things where our, our life's you know, completely cornfields are just knocked flat and destroyed and stuff where, where pastures are more resilient and grow back a little quicker and easier and, and things too. And there's a lot of advantages to a livestock grazing based farm. I mean, the lower input costs, the more reliance on nature and cattle to do the work versus machinery, fuel, and, and labor. Um, and you know, there's a lot of advantages to grazing, but we should prepare for these scary kind of, you know, years like 2021 or the different weather, um, issues that might come, whether that's a wet year or a dry year, uh, we just need to be more intentional. I would say that's always a word I've, I I've taken personally as intentionality with our management. Um, if you're, I don't know, I'll totally butcher the saying, but what it, there's some saying or quote that goes, you know, like plan failing to plan is planning to fail kind of a thing or something like that. Uh, uh, um, yeah. And it goes, it, right, yeah. yeah. Hand in hand with, livestock and grazing management. If you don't plan, um, if you don't plan for something, if you fail to make a plan for situations, you're essentially planning to fail. And a lot of farmers, I think experienced this year, ourselves included, um, we, we weren't hundred percent prepared and fortunately we were able to make it through it and stuff. Okay. But, uh, I just, I think this is good warning for all, you know, just to be prepared. Oh yeah, well, definitely. Especially when we, I mean, we're pretty sure we can expect to see more extreme weather swings and you're mm -hmm. spot on with like, whether it's drought or flooding, or, I mean, mm -hmm. who yeah. knows what else nature can serve us up with, but. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the beauty of all this soil health stuff is that it's just building resilience into your business and into your farm. Um, you know, I mean, we, and it might not even be weather related too. I mean, 2020 and mm -hmm. 2021 also brought us other challenges with COVID and, and 
you know, packing plants shutting down and local processing plants being overwhelmed and demand for local meat being higher than ever. I mean, it was, it was a wild year and a half here. Um, but it's just kind of funny because a lot of the things that we've done here with SFA for years prior to me ever coming on, um, whether we were thinking about it as planning for the year 2020 and 2021, you know, or not it really set people up well to be prepared for 2020 and 2021. I mean, the, the food supply issues, you know, we've been working with farmers to try and help build direct marketing enterprises and relationships with local processors and food, you know, just different food channels than the typical commodity market and stuff. We've been working with farmers to do that, uh, I'm at as long as I've been around anyway, I don't know when they started with a lot of that work um, and soil health, you know, we've been working on soil health for years as well. Kent Solberg, you know, kind of been doing that for decades. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's a, he's a pro at this stuff. And so, you know, these things that we've been promoting as just working to help farmers be better farmers and to be more profitable farmers really, um, you know, lined us up well to, you know, some farmers to, not take advantage of the the last couple of years, but to be more prepared and to be more resilient to these challenges that came in the last couple of years. Yeah. And I, I'm finding a through line there with what I've heard from colleagues, both within SFA and in other organizations about the way that um, to address, you know, those market issues and some meat processing issues in the last year, like a lot of organizations, SFA included, like came together to partner and work on those things together. And so is to canvas through line through the the nature of you know these field days and the relationships that you build personally on farms to mm-hmm. like the farmer to farmer networking that happens and also like inter organizational and some NGOs um, came coming together too to to work on these problems so just these yeah the, the coming together and the relationship building has been very key yeah. yeah no for sure it's really cool to see actually like how many. I don't know how many people come together, how many organizations there are working towards similar goals, farmers' willingness to share and, you know, teach each other. I mean, collaboration, I would say, is a big part of the, not not just the sustainable farming, you know, the regenerative farming kind of world, but just agriculture in general. It's kind of cool, I would say, the, the, the ability we have to come together and help your neighbor kind of a mindset and stuff. And, and it's really shown out in the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And in doing that, even when times were good, it's it's prepared us for the more challenging times too, or at least cued us up to to, to take take them on. Yeah, yeah. Yep, no doubt. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, yeah, gosh, I feel like I've been all doom and gloom the last few minutes and stuff too. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah. We're lucky there's there's good times in agriculture too. And we're we're working mm-hmm. with I mean, yeah, there's there's good things as well. But yeah. No, no, you're right, right on. That's something I always have to remind myself because especially, yeah, I, I I tend to get stuck in the doom and gloom. And I had a lot of questions yeah. queued up for you that referred to the doom and gloom, but I, no. I wanted to, <laughs> to be sure no to, yeah. to pull in some, yeah, some of like the yeah. hopeful things that we've seen this year. And I think you've yeah. also really illustrated what you've seen as hopeful, but. Yeah. And there's other highlights too, not you know, on other farms and some of the, even the worst areas, we had a field day this summer at Bob Karen's in Managa uh, and it was really cool were you at, i'm not sure were you at that field day i didn't make chances? it to that okay is, okay is that like western yeah minnesota? yeah west central northwest kind of minnesota um but to me when i get north and west of the cities it's west and northern minnesota so yeah, yeah. I, I, my, my, my geography gets a little uh fuzzy when i get out there but 
Um, <laughs> I, I would say that his region is one of the worst regions in the state as far as the drought this year. And it was mm-hmm. cool because we we did this field day and we kind of did a hay wagon ride and we went around and saw, first of all, driving to his farm, you see a ton of pastures just like with nothing. Um, the grass never grew at like at all. And if it did, it was barely anything there. People talked about, you know, getting like 10% or 25% of their normal hay production off of some of their hay fields. Um, and when you get to Bob's farm, well, one thing he had, he had grass everywhere. Um, and, and he was still grazing, which was awesome. And then the last step on his kind of little wagon tour was where he had bale grazed the previous winter. And this is, it, it's kind of a, it's a weird thing to me because it seems like such a no-brainer bale grazing. Uh, it, it's it's just simply instead of feeding your cattle in a yard and hauling your fertilizer back out in the spring, you just feed your hay to your livestock over winter out on the pasture. You know, it's pretty simple mm-hmm. concept. It saves you hauling manure out in the spring. Um, the cattle do it for you. Uh, and you get the fertility right where they need it. But also the biggest thing about it is that you capture a ton of fertility that usually is lost when you feed in a feedlot to volatilization, either through leaching or runoff or evaporation. A lot of the fertility that, uh, that is had in the urine and the manure is lost entirely. When you bale graze and you feed out on the ground, all of that is captured as well as the wasted hay is all that carbon is just deposited right there in the soil. It covers the soil. And so this last stop where he had bale grazed last winter, um, where literally everywhere around that we had seen other than under irrigation was brown and dead was this spot was tall and green and growing and knee high. I mean, it was like wild. I, I don't know. It was crazy. It was really cool to see. And that's just a simple management change of where you feed your cattle in the winter. Um, and mm-hmm. Bob did a great job of, of you know, targeting a, a location that needed the fertility in, in an area that he had said usually produced nothing, like virtually nothing. And in past years, even on high rainfall years, it was just extremely unproductive. And by bale grazing there for two winters, it was tall, lush green grass and just really cool to see. Um, another farmer that I, I worked, worked with this summer sent me photos of where she kind of bale grazed through the summer because it was dry. Um, but so she ended up feeding some hay in the middle of summer because she was short of grass and she bale grazed that she, instead of feeding it in the shed where she typically had, she fed mm-hmm. it out on the pasture and same thing. She sent me photos of this pasture that was taller than everywhere else. Even in this dry year, the only spot that was space that was growing was where she had bale grazed. Um, and that was within the same season. You're yeah. Saying. Yep. Same oh season gosh. later okay. that summer, even. Yep. Yeah. It was, it was just cool to see. So, uh, yeah, no doubt. And, and another farmer that comes to mind who wasn't, she was in a dry area, but not as dry as some of these higher regions and stuff too. Um, like this one, like she took to heart the principle of diversity, which is, a, you know, one of the soil health principles that we, we preach a lot on. And rather than just corn and soybeans, corn and soybeans, she took the opportunity to plant, uh, you know, a small grain into her rotation underseeded with clover. And so her rotation looked more like they had corn, soybeans, and I think it was oats or barley or some sort of small grain that underneath was underseeded with clover. And when she harvested the, the small grain off of it, all of that clover grew up. And so when she was short of feed, maybe the pasture was slowing down and she had less pasture in the, the late summer and fall. Uh, now, because she had added in this different crop with an underseeded cover crop, she had this whole field of clover to graze for um, several weeks. And, and allowed her perennial, perennial pastures to recover and regrow. And 
and stuff. And so it's just cool to see these people implementing soil health principles, things that we talk about all the time and, and how on a year like this, it set them up better. Uh, you know, it didn't make them immune, but it set them up better and allowed them to be a little more resilient to these, these kinds of things. So yeah, there's definitely highlights and, and good things to say about the year 2021, uh, despite <laughs> the challenges. <laughs> ah, well, thank goodness. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we've been through it. Yeah. And I, I know this mm-hmm. doesn't really sugarcoat anything, but it, it is a hopeful and, um, mm-hmm. yeah, some hopeful and positive examples, I think give folks reason to not just totally unplug and be like, well, nothing yeah. I can do or for mm-hmm. this is just too difficult kind of thing. Yeah. It's really powerful yeah. to see those, those examples that are working, <laughs> even yeah. if it is just like making it less bad for the season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sometimes that, that is like, you know, great. And you're like this, if it's less bad is pretty darn good. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to hear, well, I, I'd just be curious to hear, and I don't know if there's anything specifically you've learned in your involvement in some of these food groups in the cities and stuff. I mean, the whole food system, like what we're trying to do, building more direct to consumer kind of, you know, relationships between producers and consumers. You do some of that work in some of the relationships you have in the Twin Cities. I mean, it kind of gives you an unfair advantage or unique advantage, I would say, <laughs> being in the cities and having those relationships that a lot of us farmers out in the country don't get. Have you seen any kind of in the last couple of years with your work or with different food co-ops and different groups, some sort oh, of totally. yeah, changes? Yeah. And that's like, that is so important to me. And um, on the flip side, also something I'm always like kind of self-conscious about working with sustainable farming association is I'm like, Oh, I'm the city kid. Like I don't farm. I can like barely grow tomatoes. All right. And um, I think that brings a good valuable perspective that farming organizations need to hear that a lot of times they maybe don't listen to. So I, yes, good. I'm glad. I appreciate that. Gosh, I appreciate that, Jared. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, yeah. I, I mean, I think it is a unique, I guess, and on the team perspective, or it can be, um, since like most of y'all are farmers, but that's something that has been really important to me is like, okay, like where, how can we plug in folks like me or, um, eaters broadly speaking? Mm -hmm. So who Mm -hmm. definitely care about this work, maybe don't really know where to plug in or how to be involved or what their role is because maybe I'm projecting, but I felt like that way, um, a lot in the last several years, like, okay, where, how do I, do something about this thing that I care about when I'm not a farmer. Um, Cause we all, we, we hear like vote with your dollars and like that can be important too, but that has yeah. never quite felt like enough to me. I want to have like a deeper connection or build like more solid relationships. Sure. Um, yeah. And we're, yeah. I mean, I, I feel really lucky to live in a city with such a vibrant food scene. Um, mm. It can be as, as shallow and that's not even really shallow as like going to eat at a farm to table restaurant. I think that like has value too. Of mm-hmm. course, um, we, we want our local foods to be bought <laughs> in yeah, local places yeah. and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think over time working with SFA uh, and building more connections with food co-ops. Um, I used to work at a food co-op for a couple of years doing cashiering and such and Mm-hmm. Um, now we, we have more partnerships or I, I think they've been ongoing for SFA, but now I am, can be a part of these partnerships with, uh, various twin cities co-ops who 
we'll do things like the register roundup to give us funding for specific projects. And mm. uh, this, this summer I had a really fun opportunity to attend uh, the Lake Winds membership, like annual meeting. And we were invited because we were a Roundup recipient for them. And we um, used that money to fund the publication of a new resource for soil health of fruit and vegetable growers. Um, mm. And so I got to table with Teresa, our executive director, and there was a couple um, farmers who were there for other reasons, but they were also SFA members. And so we got to hang out and chat and catch up. And it was really fun to talk with um, these members living in like the West Metro who were interested in what we did and were excited to, um, to, to chat, I guess, and who mm-hmm. I could tell like their values and our values were really lining up. And uh, the mm-hmm. resource, we brought this new resource, soil health for fruit and veg, like, and people were like, Oh, it's for farmers. Like, but do you grow at home? Because like, these are the same principles that you can use yeah. like, in your own, in your own yard. Right. Like <laughs> that's yeah. kind of the beauty of those, those five principles is that they, they work in various mm-hmm. contexts. Yeah. contexts. Mm-hmm. yeah, so I think there is a lot going on and I, I am excited to continue to find more ways to connect um, an eater to our work. I know that mm-hmm. there's, uh, I've enjoyed a couple of webinars, um, which were more like meetings, I guess, uh, during COVID where some folks from regional sustainable development partnerships were having these intentional conversations around um, how do we bridge the urban and rural divide how do we sure. like that there was it was full of people from like the cities who were like, I would love to go visit a farm. <laughs> huh. And it was full of people on farms being like, we would love to host an event. How do we like make these connections happen? So yeah. um I I'm excited for more more of that. Yeah. No, that that's really interesting because I, you know, I think myself and a lot of farmers probably take it take for granted this fact that we grew up on farms like I talked about I'm mm-hmm. here my dad grew up there you know just down the road we've been here for generations but a lot of people don't have that experience um and and also from a farmer perspective kind of as we were talking about earlier like this whole the food system your experience with food co-ops how have you seen those relationships between or maybe I don't know if you have seen or, or with some of your work some of the relationships between farmers and food co-ops what benefits have you seen both to the communities and the locals uh, able to access food in those food co-ops and what has that meant for some of the farmers that are participating in those food co-ops? Ooh, that's a great question. And I think I'll <laughs> clarify with uh, my experience being like, I was a cashier. I worked in the front end, so I didn't work sure. one-on-one with like any buying um, mm-hmm. or anything. So, but from what I could see there, uh, we, I think most co-ops have a CSA drop-off, like they are okay. a site for people. So that sure. can be very helpful. Um I mean, short of like uh, some like broader examples, I think like I'm always really excited to be able to see the local label when I shop at a co-op. And the more that I'm working in this space, the more farm names I like recognize and I'm I'm excited to see. Um, Mm -hmm. My folks were just telling me they were warning me about like the (laughs) onion salmonella outbreak. And I was like, I I know I don't need to worry about that because I know. All of my onions are from here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because uh, I went to the farmer's market or I went to huh. uh, Mississippi market or whatever. Sure. Um, yeah, th- things like that. I, I mean, I know I have a friend mm-hmm. who's working in a an urban mushroom growing facility. And so I like to buy yeah. her mushrooms that I know like she had a hand in at some point. Mm-hmm. And I think overall, I just, whether it's just my 
own experience in, in noticing this or if it's broadly true too, but of just kind of seeing a tightening of the the food web um mm. in in the in the local foods world because I the other day I was uh making a recipe from Beth Dooley's new cookbook who was on the podcast before and who I met via mm. SFA even before that. Um, and she's she's a cookbook author and cook in, in the in the cities. And I needed some kernels of flour because I was going to try to make some kernels of shortbread. <laughs> and yeah. I could not, for the life of me, find kernels of flour near me. And I was making all these mm-hmm. calls. And I mean, it would get a lot of confusion from the grocery folks at some places. We're like, what? How do you spell that? What is that? Um, and then some folks were like, oh, yeah, we're like, we're trying to get that. We want it here. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't get it yet. Huh. And I finally found it at Lake Wims and I went and got that and I enjoyed cooking it, tasted great. And I just kind of had a, a warm yeah. local foods moment, I guess, of just like, okay, this is Beth, who I now know, like on a subway. Pr- okay, I'll start over. I'm not trying to fangirl too no. hard. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> I, I yeah. think she's great. But now we've met and had conversations and I, I really appreciate yeah. her work. Mm-hmm. Um and like Dale Woodbuck is the GM of Lake Winds and he's been, he's on the mm-hmm. board of SFA. And here I am making like these uh, shortbread cookies of Kernza, which I've heard for uh, mutterings about for years. And now is like kind of more in a mainstream mm-hmm. conversation from other people who were, who I work with <laughs> and had a podcast yeah. with. It was just, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's great. <laughs> I, I, I love when all of yeah. these little intersections are coming together. It's, Going, on, going back to that relationship building thing, I guess. Yeah. You know, and I just love hearing about your, again, like the word intentionality, like your, for a lot of us, it's intentional about our management. Mm. And for you, it's intentional about your food purchases. Like I, yeah. I, I want more consumers to be intentional about their food purchases, recognizing that, you know, there may be an additional cost and that for some people cost is one of the bigger things that they have to consider when making their food purchases. Totally understand that, but you're very mm-hmm. intentional about your food purchases and, and that's awesome. Um, I'm also excited for Kernza because just in the mail today uh, came a Kernza cookie that I, uh, oh. cookies that I, I got and stuff. So I, I'm going to be trying my first Kernza product oh here gosh. shortly or second. I've had it once before too. So looking forward to that. Um, but no, I, thank you. I appreciate that perspective because it, it is important. Um, it's, it's something, uh, yeah, I, I hear a lot in the farming world, the, like the commodity farming world is, you know, we need to educate the consumer, educate the consumer, educate the consumer. And part of it, sure. Yes. Partly we do need to educate the consumer. There are some myths, there are some incorrect statements, but at the same time, we need to take consumers seriously too. And their, their wants, their desires as, as farmers, you know, it's great if we can just go out and produce corn and beans and that's great. But if that's not what the consumer is demanding and they want something different, we need to hear too. And consumers, uh, you know, I need to educate farmers. Farmers need to be somewhat educated <laughs> by consumers too, as to what they want. And, and as well, and, and like you said, that for the, the simplest way a, a consumer can probably do that is, is with your food dollar, but, but we can go deeper and, and have more relationships with, with consumers. And that's what my wife and I are trying to do with mm-hmm. direct marketing. That's what so many farmers across the Minnesota are doing. And I love seeing that because just from the pure financial benefit to the farm, to the relationship benefits that you get with some of the consumers. It's awesome. And, and I love hearing that, you know, intentional relationship building that you, you have with farmers. It's really neat. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I always get excited when I hear other people doing 
doing the same. And when, and especially when it's coming mm. from the farmer too, I don't, it's probably a lot more legwork on your end to uh, take, take time and space and try to find out how to build those connections. But I guess also it's in some cases built into your, into your business. <laughs> You're trying to find customers. Yes. So. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yep. No, it's, it's a big part of the business and that's why, yeah, for those wanting to get into it, <laughs> be ready. It's not easy, <laughs> but it can be really rewarding. Yeah. And I think, I mean, to some points that you've, you've made in our personal conversations too, of like when we build those relationships, I think that really helps with um, uh, maybe not villainizing certain types of farming or things that uh, mm-hmm. we can't just ever really paint with a broad brush. Like one really yeah. easy example, I guess, is like, all right, cows are ruining the planet. Um, and and mm-hmm. we're fed that. I mean, consumers are fed that information all broadly all the time. Um, but mm-hmm. hey, if if someone met you and saw your farm and what you're doing, it just adds another layer of understanding and some nuance, yeah. you know, <laughs> we need more of that. Yep. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And I agree. Yep. It's, and, and yeah, I don't know how many listeners we have in the consumer role more so, but I sure would encourage you. If you, you mentioned there are people out there, I would love to visit a farm. Mm-hmm. I would, I think most farms would love to share uh, a uh-huh. lot of farms anyway, you know, we sure would. So yeah, don't be afraid to reach out or connect. Yeah connect with the local farm you know most are happy to share what they do heck yeah and i think i want to like tell this to everyone i talk to about sfa who's like me and who doesn't who's not a farmer but you can go to a field day you can go to a yes yes yeah like (laughs) you're invited (laughs) yeah that would be so cool yeah i would love to and i would love to see more more consumers become producers at whatever scale that amounts to you know if it's tomatoes in your backyard or a couple backyard chickens or honeybees or or if it's like some of the coolest some of the relationships that I've gotten to do through work uh, as well is people who reach out to me and say hey I just our dream has always been to buy a farm we just bought 40 acres can you help me and it's ah. like you moved from yeah Los Angeles California to Minnesota to start a farm and it's like that's so awesome like congratulations mm-hmm. it's totally possible um you know to to start a farm and to get involved at whatever level you want to do so um yes thank you for that point oh yeah it's a great place to make uh make some connections with farmers cuz there's going to be a lot of farmers there so <laughs> you can come yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah well i gosh i really appreciate all that perspective katie and don't ever undervalue your perspective coming from this you know living in the city it's definitely worth a lot to our organization and to the people we serve but is there anything else you think we want to talk about or, or share here before we wrap this up Ah, thank you um i think we should probably do an episode like this in the future it was really fun yeah. to yeah have yeah. some urban rural conversation and, and take a look yeah. back on a year before we just about wrap up the season and a few episodes here. Agreed. No, most definitely. All right. Deal. All right. Well, thanks Katie. Have a good one. Yeah. (laughs) Jared, take care of you too. Yeah. (laughs) Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture done well heals. For more resources or to tap into the farmer to farmer network, visit us at sfa-mn.org. Thank you.